Here on Sunday mornings, we're teaching through the Gospel of John with this theme of life in his name, life in the name of Jesus. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking in depth at the first 18 verses of the first chapter, known as the prologue. This morning, we're going to begin uh, to hear John's telling of the narrative of the life of Jesus. Now we begin to get into the story. And I think as we do, it's important to remind ourselves that John has given us the purpose for which he has written this gospel. And he records that in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I, I love reading this, and I think it's just so helpful as we approach John's gospel. You know, we can make the Bible say all sorts of stuff, and we can go to it maybe just for a word of encouragement sometimes. We can take, you know, one line of a psalm, and it can bring this encouragement to our souls. But also, and I would say more importantly, we, we don't just need to read Scripture. We need to listen to Scripture, we need to listen to the voice of the Spirit and what he wants to teach us from his word. And so I love considering John's purpose statement here as we look at each section of John because John makes it clear he has not written a biography. He has not written an exhaustive account of the life and works of Jesus, but what he has written is hand-picked, it's curated, in order that we, the reader, the listener, might believe. That we might trust that Jesus is the Christ, that is God's anointed king, the true king of the world, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I, I find that to be a very interesting statement that John connects what we believe and trust and what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. Because you see, every one of us is trusting in, believing in, centering ourselves on something or someone, and that belief is taking us somewhere. It's either taking us further, deeper into life, or further, deeper into death, now and forever. John's purpose statement in this gospel, it gives us this opportunity to reconsider our lives at a deep level, to ask ourselves, am I really living? Am I truly experiencing a kind of love, a hope, a peace that I can commend to others? Do I have life in Jesus' name? And my prayer is that as we consider John's purpose statement and what he has written, that each of us would take up John's offer to believe, to recenter our lives around Jesus, the Messiah, in order that we may experience life, true living 
in his name. Now, it was mentioned in our preliminary discussion in John's gospel that this gospel is uniquely directed at the individual reader or hearer. And it's done so in order to elicit faith in and tie us inextricably to Jesus Christ. So the other gospel writers, they invite us to be disciples, join the group of disciples. You can see this in Mark's gospel. It's very apparent in Luke and Matthew as well. But John, however, invites us to abide in and make our home in Jesus. That is a personal invitation. John says, like branches to the vine. That's how we are to be connected or to be at home in Jesus, inextricably tied to him. John invites us to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that Jesus would be the source and sustenance of life for us. One more. John tells us that we are to be sent just as Jesus was sent. That would be to identify with Jesus and his mission to the world. So John is inviting us to find our identity, our true selves, our meaning, purpose, and mission in and through Jesus. And so I just want to ask this question as we look at this text this morning. Kind of hold this in one hand, if you will. How do you see yourself? Where do you derive your identity, meaning, and purpose? Or put more simply, who are you? Who are you? Now, as we get into this next section, we are introduced to, or reintroduced to, John the baptizer. I call him the baptizer because he's not a Baptist, okay? I think that's a little confusing sometimes. Like, really? It goes back that far. He was introduced in verse 6, but here John reintroduces him as we jump into the beginning of the narrative of this gospel. And John is a most interesting character. We're told in the other gospel accounts that he lived in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair for clothes. He ate locust and wild honey. He preached a fiery message of repentance. And he plunged people into the cool waters of the Jordan. Now, if that sounds peculiar to our ears, the people of John's day thought so as well. And it was just, it wasn't just his look or preaching that was peculiar, that was peculiar, but it was specifically that John was baptizing. And it, I want to say honestly, as I was studying this week, I had never put this together before. It was really powerful as I looked again. So what does that mean, especially interesting or peculiar that John was baptizing? Well, historically and theologically, baptism was not a common practice for the Jewish people. Baptism was reserved for non-Jews who wanted to convert to the Jewish faith and that way of life. And so in baptism, they would be washed from their pagan ways, allegiances, practices. 
And they would be brought into a whole new life, a whole new way of being. It was a sign of being cleansed, turning, and being dedicated to Yahweh. Now, John is baptizing, and this causes the religious leaders to send delegates from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Now, why would they be curious about this? Well, as I said, even though baptism was not a common practice, it was understood from Israel's prophets that a sign of the messianic age, that is the kingdom of God and the restoration of Israel, a sign of that would be a baptism that was connected with a final eschatological, that's a fancy word for end times, washing away of sin and uncleanness. Listen to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 13.1. He says, on that day, commonly known as the day of the Lord, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Also, the prophet Ezekiel had spoken of a final cleansing for the people of God that was also connected with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. This is Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28, for those of you who might be taking notes. Ezekiel writes, For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. That's restoration language. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you hearts of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land. I love that. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. See, this is why those that come from Jerusalem ask John if he is either the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet that Moses spoke about. Because each of these characters, Messiah, Elijah, and the prophet, are associated with the restoration of Israel and the Messianic kingdom. So it's not just like, oh, you're baptizing Jews. That's weird. No, no, no. It's a sign of the kingdom of God breaking into earth. And so the religious leaders are coming out. Is this it? Is this the time? And so they ask John who he is. And I love John's reply. They say, who are you? And this is what he says. Three, I am not. I am not Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. (laughs) What? Well, then who are you, they ask. And he said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight, or other translations say, prepare the way of the Lord. Brian already referenced this, but it was a reference to Isaiah chapter 40. The religious leaders hear John say this, and they say, 
Why then do you baptize if you are not Messiah, Elijah, or the prophets? And John's response here is fascinating. Listen to what he says. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So listen to what John has said. I am not Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am the voice who prepares the way of the Lord, and I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Now, here's my little paraphrase of what I think John is saying, and I know it gets a little further into the chapter, but I think you'll forgive me. John says, who am I? Me? I'm just a voice. But the one who is coming after me, you haven't seen anything yet. And this, what am I doing? This is just water. But the baptism that he brings, that is the one we are all looking for and longing for. John, if you were, if you will, excuse me, is just wetting the appetite. John, everything that he says, everything that he does is the appetizer to the incredible meal that is coming. Or maybe if you spend any time in LA in your life, John is the billboard of coming attractions. He's the trailer to the trilogy, you know, that's coming out at a theater near you. This is what John is. And John knows who he is, and he knows who he isn't. John is a voice pointing away from himself in order that all might believe through him. This was already said in verse 6 in another way. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John is the first witness. He is the voice preparing the way of the Lord. And I believe by identifying himself this way, John is saying, don't look at me. Don't look to me. Look at where I am pointing. Listen to what the voice is saying. So what or who is John pointing at? What is the voice saying? Well, let's pick up in verse 29. We'll just read it one more time. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with this water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. And I myself, I didn't know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water had told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one 
who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John says, and I have seen and I testify, this is God's chosen one. So what is John's testimony? What is the voice saying? Well, first, the voice says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, those listening to John would have immediately understood the deep historical significance of a lamb that takes away sin. It was part of their heritage, part of their story. Whether we go all the way back to Genesis 22, and there's a story of Abraham and Isaac who go to make sacrifice to God on the mountain of Moriah. And as they're ascending the mountain there, and Isaac has the wood on him, and Abraham has the instruments of torture, the knife and the fire, Isaac turns to his father and says, Father, where is the lamb? What does Abraham reply? God will provide himself a lamb. God has a lamb that will be provided, Abraham says to Isaac. You know the rest of the story. Isaac is put on the altar. An angel stops Abraham at the last minute before he sacrifices Isaac. And a lamb is provided for sacrifice. Isaac is spared. The lamb is slaughtered in his place. But that's not the only lamb of the Old Testament scriptures. There's also the lamb of Isaiah 53. The one Lamb, the meek and mild lamb who does not open his mouth, who is led to the slaughter for the transgressions, pain, and suffering of the people of God. But perhaps most obvious of all is the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. Now, for those of you who might not know, the Passover, or the first Passover, was the night the people of Israel were freed from 400 years plus of slavery in Egypt. God's judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt passed through the land, killing the firstborn of the families whose homes were not covered in the blood of a slain lamb. God had commanded the people to take a spotless lamb, to kill it, cook it, eat it, and to take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorposts of their house. And as God's destroying angel went through the land, he would pass over the houses who had blood upon the post, signifying a lamb was slaughtered, sacrificed in place of the people. The lamb would die as the substitute, taking upon itself the sin and judgment of the people. This memorial, of course, is commemorated in the Passover festival and meal that's still practiced and observed by Jews even to this day. Now, by the end of John's story, all of this comes together. The death of Jesus will take place on the afternoon when the Passover lambs are being killed in the temple. God is providing a lamb, Jesus, the true Passover lamb. Jesus, the lamb of Isaiah 53. Jesus, the lamb of Genesis 22. So that the world's judgment can be dealt with. 
It can be removed, placed on him that he might take away the sin of the world. And John, like many of the New Testament writers, wants us to understand the events concerning Jesus as a new and better exodus. Just as God brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God is now bringing his people out of a deeper, darker slavery, the slavery of sin. That's what Jesus' sacrifice is all about. Freeing the world from its slavery to sin because sin is slavery. Now, in our day and age, we don't like to talk about sin or slavery or any of these archaic religious superstitious type words. But we do talk about addiction or even we use things like, well, I'm not living up to my full potential. And it's interesting how even when we talk about addiction and these things, we use similar language to slavery, like being overcome by our addiction or enslaved to it. I've heard a lot of people recently talk about even betraying their true selves. What does that mean? Now, though many would say in our day and age that the ancient Judeo-Christian doctrine of sin is primitive, puritanical, medieval, whatever you want to call it, outdated, what is the one thing that almost every human being agrees on? That something is deeply wrong with the world. Everyone. And that this deep wrong, brokenness and evil, even shows up in each of us. Selfishness and pride. After centuries of kingdoms and nations, monarchs, politicians, religious leaders and pseudo-saviors, our world is still greatly broken. Economists know it. Psychologists know it. Everyone knows it. The word the Bible uses for this is sin. And without believing in the doctrine of sin, you really can't make logical sense of the world around you. But what is sin? Because sometimes we just talk about sin as in doing bad things. But you know, the biblical idea of sin is actually, it's much more than that. In Psalm 51, King David uses three different words to describe what we call sin. First, he uses sin as in iniquity, meaning that sin is actually self-absorption. We humans are curved in on ourselves. The word iniquity means to be twisted or bent, and it would be used of a bow that would not shoot straight. The second word he uses is sin as in transgression. We're familiar with this one. Transgression refers to stubbornness and willfulness. I don't know about you. I am the type of person, if it says, do not do this, do not trespass, whatever, fill in the blank, I want to do that thing. And often I have. There's just something about a commandment that says, thou shalt not, that makes us want to be like, Hold my drink. Watch me. I'll do it double, right? 
What is that? Well, that's iniquity. (laughs) We're twisted. We're bent. But we transgress. We want to transgress. We're bent on our own will, self-determination, rather than God's will to love him supremely, to love others in the way that he has loved us. And finally, the Bible uses the word sin as in failure. And I would say this is what our culture is talking about when we talk about betraying our two, our true selves, not living up to our full potential because the word sin means to miss the mark. It means to get it wrong. It means I'm not what I should be. And I will never actually be in this life what I could be. What is that? The Bible calls this sin. And these three different definitions of sin make the world a miserable place. Now, the teaching of the Bible is that when the first humans, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, they brought this sin into the world. And with it, disease, decay, death, selfishness, and greed. The world and everything and everyone in it is now under this slavery dominion of sin. We cannot break free. We are powerless to it. And we are also co-conspirators in it. It's very similar to the language we use around addiction, isn't it? Powerless and yet I love it. I, I can't stop it. I am I'm addicted to it. It's like a, you know, a mistress. These are the kind of terms that people use when talking about addiction. Now, I believe deep down that every human being knows that something is off in the world. I said that a moment ago. That there is a kind of poison that lives in every single one of us that causes us to hurt the, lo- the ones we love the most, causes us to sabotage our own lives with our selfishness and make the world a difficult place to live. And as I said, the Bible calls this sin. This is what has separated us from God and from being what God created us to be and what he created the world to be. Now, a few weeks back, I summarized the prologue of John saying that Jesus, the word, has been sent by the Father to bring us back to what God created us to be, to bring us back into the dance of God, back into fellowship with God, back into his love, his life, joy, and peace that God has created us for. But how does God do this? Well, John has just told us, by giving us his lamb, who will take away our selfishness, our greed, our pride, our brokenness, our iniquity. God comes in the person of Jesus of Nazareth as a substitute, a spotless lamb, in our place to bear the judgment that all of humanity's evil, wrongdoing, and selfishness deserves so we can be forgiven. You know, in Scripture, it's interesting. A lot of times we talk about sin more in terms of guilt, and that is real. But many times in the Old Testament, sin was described as a burden. It was a weight. 
It was a weight that bore down on you. It was a crushing weight. David talks about this. After he had sinned with Bathsheba, he says, I could barely breathe. I felt the weight of my sin upon me. And the idea here is that Jesus lifts that weight from off of us, the weight that is killing us, the weight that is destroying us, the weight that is keeping us submerged, drowning. Jesus comes to lift that weight off of us so we can be set free from sin's power. Well, who will Jesus do that for? Well, John's already told us. He is the lamb who is being sacrificed for the world. That means there is no nationality, no ethnicity, no socioeconomic status, no gender excluded, but to as many as receive him, John says, who believe on his name, their sins are taken away. Their burden is lifted Their shame is removed. Their guilt is expelled. I love what commentator Bruce Milne, in his commentary, the message of John says. He says, the sins of the world without any exception. Every kind of sin and evil is covered. There is no sin too heinous. No wickedness too terrible, and I believe that this might be a word for many of you this morning, no habitual failure too often repeated that cannot be taken away by Christ, our heavenly lamb. Or Ray Ortland Jr., In typical fashion, he says, the atoning death of Jesus is so massive that the whole world could come to him today and he wouldn't feel it at all. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 10,000 worlds, 10,000 hells could come to Jesus today and his capacity to forgive wouldn't be diminished one single drop. He has a fullness of grace upon grace for sin upon sin, including yours and mine. Behold, God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Can you see it? Can you hear it? John the voice says that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an incredible statement and offer for any and every human to have our guilt and our shame, our wrongs undone, removed, to be cleansed. You know, I don't know how many of you guys are carnal enough to have watched Hamilton. Yeah, okay, good. You guys are are tracking. So my whole family loves Hamilton. We all watch it. We love it. There is, you know how sometimes stories, like the, 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 the part of the story that's just the most powerful is not the ending sometimes. Actually, many times the ending of the story is tragic, isn't it? But there's this part in the story of Hamilton where him and his wife begin to reconcile. They move out of the you know, downtown city of New York and they move to the, I think it's the Upper East Side at the time. And they begin to rebuild their relationship. They've lost their son. He's committed adultery. He's been a scoundrel. Their relationship is just in 
ashes. And there's this song that they sing about their reconciliation. And there's this, you know, everyone around them is, is noticing what's going on with the Hamiltons. And there's this line in it that gets me every time. Forgiveness, they sing. Can you imagine? Can you actually imagine forgiveness? Real forgiveness. As though our sins are gone. As though it never happened that you are cleansed. You are purified, that you're made whole. I'll tell you what, the world cannot imagine. And that's why redemptive stories are still so powerful to us. Because it's something that comes from out of this world. It's something that is not normal to human existence and relationships. No, true, real forgiveness comes from outside of us. It comes from God. And it can truly only come from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Forgiveness. Can you imagine And that's what I would like you to do this morning. I would like you to imagine because that is the offer of Jesus Christ to any and all who will come to him to be forgiven. But that is not all that there is. There is more. Jesus is also the one on whom the Spirit remains, John will tell us, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got a little bone to pick, and so I'm just going to use you guys to pick it with, okay? I feel that sometimes Christians are overly obsessed with talking about sin. Now, I do morning devotions with my children Five days a week, we sit around the table, and we have, I don't know, we've read all the discipleship books that are out there, you know, at least the decent ones. And it's interesting because it's like almost every single, it's like we're in the book of Proverbs, we're in 1 Corinthians. It doesn't matter where we are, the writer somehow brings it back to, you're a sinner, you know, unless you ask you to forgive your sins, you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell. And I'm just like, geez, man, like... Isn't there anything more than this? What about for those that are like, Jesus, I want to follow you. Okay, have your sins forgiven so that you die, you go to heaven, you don't go to hell. Is there anything more? And the answer is emphatically, yes, there is. There is so much more. There is more than having our sins forgiven as great and as powerful as that is. There is more than just wrestling and struggling with the flesh and with the spirit for the rest of our lives. No, there is a life in the name of Jesus. That's what there is. There is life in his name, a quality of life, as I said, that comes from out of this world, an identity that comes from God. John says, can you believe this out of this world kind of love that you and I would be called sons of God? There is a life, there is an identity, there is a living that comes with forgiveness of sin. 
The Christian life is not just about the absence of sin. It's about the positivity of life. Church, do not define yourself by what you are not. That is not the way of Jesus. We must define ourselves by Jesus and by what Jesus was about. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what John's next statements are about. The life-giving spirit of God. The embarking on a whole new way of life. A life lived in the presence and power of God. So John, the voice says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. First John tells us that he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus and remain on him. And John says this was the confirmation that Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the sign that Jesus is the one to be connected with the expected restoration of Israel through God's Spirit. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah 13. He is the one who will bring the cleansing, the new heart, and the fullness of life that the prophets had spoken of. Through Jesus, the promised age of the kingdom of God is dawning. Think about what Paul says. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are what? A new creation. It's a whole new way of being. So what does baptism with the Spirit mean? It seems that John wants us to understand that Jesus' work of taking away sin and baptizing the Spirit are two sides of the same coin. What we would refer to as conversion, regeneration, or being born again. So what John the voice is saying in a nutshell is this. Jesus Christ is God's anointed servant, the chosen one, right? It's the last thing he says. Sent to remove our sin, the barrier that keeps us from God, the barrier of weight that keeps us from life. He is the one sent to remove our sin, and bring us into the presence of God, filling us with the Holy Spirit. And this means being filled with the Holy Spirit that we are indwelt by and empowered by the life-giving Spirit of God. We're under a new mode of operation. No longer are we controlled by the spirit of this world, by the desires of this world, the goals of this world, but we are on a whole new trajectory, whole new mode of operation. We are indwelt and empowered by the life-giving spirit of God. Jesus gives us his joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. See, through Jesus' baptism with the Spirit, humanity comes into a whole new dimension of what it means to be human, of what it means to live, and that is a life in fellowship with God, the source of all life, love, goodness, and truth. Now, a few weeks back, 
I was giving an overview of the first 18 verses of this first chapter, and I mentioned how we humans were created by God and for God. They were created to center around God, that he is the source of all life. He's the source of all goodness, of all love, of all meaning, of all beauty and truth. You know, the truth is, so many of us, we don't know who we are. Or even the way that we operate in our Christianity, that we think that that's a separate question outside of faith in Jesus. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our purpose is. And, you know, there are people in the culture who don't know God, who aren't religious, who are talking about being their true selves, finding their true selves, being their authentic selves. And you know what? That desire is real. That is a human desire. And I believe it is a desire that God has put within us to find our true selves because we were created with a purpose. It's good to want to know who we are and what our purpose is. You might remember I asked last time, what are you looking for? What do you think life looks like? And where do you think you'll find it? As we wrap things up, I believe that even as we are barely into the story of Jesus as told by John, John is already inviting us to discover our true self in light of who Jesus is. John the baptizer tells us, I am just a voice pointing away from myself to someone and something so glorious. One whose sandal straps I am not worthy to untie. John derives his identity from Jesus. He derives this self-identity, this meaning and purpose from Jesus. And John gets to introduce us to God's sin-removing lamb, the one who baptizes with the Spirit, God's very own son. What an honor. Listen, John is not Messiah. John is not the great Elijah, nor is he the prophet. He's just a voice. But what a glorious song he gets to sing. You and I are not Messiah. We are not Elijah. We are not the prophet. And I will even go as far to say this. We are not anything great on our own. With our world revolving around us, trying to derive our identity from the culture out there or just based upon what we do or the education that we got for ourselves. But we are invited to be a voice and to join in this pointing away from ourselves to God's Lamb. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? We get to be a voice that says, Yes. 
There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. We get to be a voice pointing away from ourselves to God's lamb who takes our burdens of sin and guilt and who gives us the life-giving spirit of God. And so I believe this is how the spirit is inviting us to experience life in the name of Jesus this morning. And as we journey on this road of John's gospel together, to receive life in his name by saying, Jesus, let me be your voice. Jesus, let me be your hands. Jesus, let me be your feet. Let me point others to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just with my voice, but with my posture, with my compassion, with my generosity, with my inclusiveness. Lord, let me be a voice. And so now, as we close and we partake in communion together, the band's going to come out, but we have the opportunity this morning to respond with this offer. You know, there's just something so beautiful about getting up and walking down to this table, isn't it? Isn't there? You know what that is? You know what the beauty of that is? We're participating. We're not being passive. We're being active. We're saying, yes. I want life in the name of Jesus, and I'm coming to the table with my whole body involved, and I'm doing this whole body practice of taking and eating, of drinking down. I'm responding with my whole person to Jesus' offer. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in them. And so in this participatory act of taking communion this morning, we are saying to Jesus, let me be a voice for you. Let my life point away from myself to your goodness, to your love, to your forgiveness. Jesus, let me find myself in you and through you. Church, that is the offer on hand for us this morning. And for those of you who might be hearing this for the hundredth time, but you have never responded to Jesus' offer of life in his name, come to the table of the Lord. This is a table of grace. This is a table that represents Christ's body that was broken for you, Christ's blood that was shed for you, that you might be forgiven, that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world might take your sin away. And he might give you his life-giving spirit. We invite you this morning to come to the table of the Lord. And to center your life around Jesus. I am not Messiah. I am not Elijah, John says. I am not the prophet. I am a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Be it unto me and be it unto you.